Well, good morning, friends. It's uh, great to be with you again. I wish we were together in person. I can't wait for that day, but it is nice to be here with you. I was reminded recently of a story by Ken Robinson, an educator, who tells a story about a young girl, six-year-old girl in art class that I love. The girl sat at the back of class as she normally did and hardly ever paid attention, but in this drawing lesson, she did. The teacher was fascinated. She went over to her and said, what are you drawing? And the girl said, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the teacher said, but nobody knows what God looks like. And the little girl looked up from her drawing and said, they will in a minute. I wonder if we need a fresh picture of who God is. This morning, I'd like to do a quick flyover of the Gospel of John and look at the picture that Jesus portrays of who God is. And then we'll look at two particular stories in John to see how they shape our understanding of Jesus. And if they change the narrative or the story of God that we live with and how we speak of him and then how we demonstrate him. I love the Gospel of John because it portrays this beautiful picture of who Jesus is and redefines, really, what God is like to the culture of Jesus' day, and also redefines who Jesus is for our culture today. So I want you to hear this big idea, if you hear nothing else this morning, here's the big idea that I want to convey, that I believe that we can take our lead from Jesus and redefine what a follower of Jesus looks like in our culture. And furthermore, I suggest that a follower of Christ is one who recognizes their need for God's mercy and is willing to extend it to others. I'm going to read um, from John 14 in a moment. Um, and I invite you to look along. It will be on the screen as it usually is. But let me read John 1:14 verses 1 through 11 to start. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. And you know the way where I am going. No, we don't, Lord, Thomas said. We have no idea where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus told him, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you had really known me, you would know who my Father is. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Jesus replied, Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives in me does this work through me. Just believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe because of the work ye have seen me do. So in verse 9 here, we see Jesus, uh, we hear him say this, 
Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And that's a critical thought for us here. Uh, we have revelation in Scripture, the Old Testament and the New Testament. But Jesus kind of trumps them all. He's our greatest revelation. And what he's saying here is that if you've seen me, this is what God looks like. This is who he is. I've lived him out before you. And throughout the Gospel of John, there's these I am statements. There's actually seven of them. And we see uh, also in the Gospel of John, there's seven miraculous signs. John liked the number seven. It was kind of the perfect biblical number. And so he says these things. He says, first of all, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the true vine. Jesus uses these I am statements to identify himself with the sovereign God of the Old Testament. They follow perfectly. So what can we learn from Jesus that will help us in our day? Some of you may have heard of an article that appeared in the uh, New York Times last week. And the author, a psychologist named Adam Grant, used the term languishing to describe that what we are currently feeling at this point in the pandemic. It is kind of a chronic joylessness and aimlessness. It's a sense of stagnation, stagnation and emptiness. We just feel kind of meh. And I think we are collectively just a bit, or perhaps more than a bit, grumpy and less tolerant of others. It doesn't take much for people to get under our skin. John Stackhouse, who's a theologian in New Brunswick, formerly taught at Regent College in BC, but in his article in Faith Today this month, he asked this question about Christ and culture in Canada, and he says, what light will they notice? And he goes on to say this, in these cynical times in which politicians sink to new depths and even pastors publicly explode in scandal, how can the gospel possibly be heard? As Jesus said it would be, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. He goes on, Mention Christianity in a Canadian conversation today, and what gets triggered? Residential schools, Mount Cashel, homophobia, sexism. Those are the items high on the list of what many Canadians know about our religion and our community. Mention Christianity, and precisely no one will bring up the Trinity, or substitutionary atonement, or rebirth and sanctification. These doctrines are crucial to our message of hope. What we are known for, however, are our deeds, not our ideas. What does impress people, and Stackhouse asked this question, can we finally learn this, is our service. And I would add, our kindness, especially in the form of mercy. 
So how do we deal with people who frustrate us, who think differently, who are irrational, who are self-righteous, or just plain bug us? <laughs> I think there is an opportunity here for us to show the light of the world. In a second story that I'd like to read today, um, Jesus also revealed his actions or his um, words or demonstrated who God was through his actions. So I'm going to read John 8, 1 to 11. It's a familiar story to many of you. And, and you'll see that in many texts when you read um, the story that it says not in the original text. And that doesn't mean that it's not, uh, doesn't have historical veracity. It just means um, that they weren't sure where it really fit. And it actually feels a bit clunky here, but the story itself stands on its own legs and it's very powerful. And it's perfectly accurate and should be part of our canon. John 8, 1 to 11. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in an act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to Stoner, what do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him, but Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and rode in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. I want to look at this passage and see what the story offers us about the character of God. And I think that it also has something that we can imitate. So there's some problems with the story at the outset. You'll notice some of these things may strike you strangely. Uh, but one of the problems is this, that the law also expected that if a person witnessed another about to commit a sin, compassion required them to speak up. So if you were to accuse somebody of the act of adultery and, suggested, and suggest that they needed to be stoned to death, you needed to have very good information. You needed to back up that story. And so it required two people to actually witness. Um, there was a whole bunch that went into the story. But it also said that if you knew somebody was going to do something or any other kind of sin, it was incumbent upon you to act with compassion and to point it out to that person and to speak up. So that's missing in the story. Secondly, where is her lover? The lot that these Pharisees specify, that the, it says that the man uh, should be put to death also. 
Actually, that's the first thing it says in the verses in Deuteronomy. But women in Jesus' day were often considered to be the instigator in these affairs. And the Pharisees are seeking to humiliate her. So they drag her in front of all the people, and there she is. And they also do that so that they can trap Jesus in speaking either against the law or allowing them to stone her. So there's some other observations that we can take note of. First of all, Jesus, as he's sitting on the ground, what did he write? <laughs> did he write from Deuteronomy 22:24? Did he write portions of the law? Did he write out the Ten Commandments? Did he write out the sins of those who gathered? Did he quote from a verse that says, let him be the first to throw out a stone, he who is without sin? Or was he just stalling for time? He certainly doesn't seem to be in a rush. But if the Pharisees come back again at Jesus, and they push Jesus to decide. And Jesus seems to be stuck between a rock and a hard place, so to speak. We can't imagine what it was, would be like, the pressure that Jesus must have felt at that moment, and certainly the emotional agony that this woman must have been experiencing, the humiliation, and I think the understanding of the depth of her sin. And Jesus does not take sin lightly. Often people gravitate in this story. To, there are people who say, well, it demands justice, uh, people can't go on sinning. Something needs to be done for that. It shouldn't be taken lightly. We experience that all the time when we think that somebody has done something worse than what we have done. Jesus doesn't take the sin lightly. It is a very serious matter to him. But he invites the religious leaders who are without sin to throw the first stone. And, honest, and obviously... None of them can meet that criteria. And by one by one, they start leaving, starting with the oldest. They drop their stones and they walk away. So Jesus does not dismiss the sin of the woman, but he actually stands up now and he looks her in the eye and asks, where are your accusers? And you can think, um, who knows what was going through her mind. And I imagine that she didn't answer with a lot of authority. But she probably said quietly, no one, sir. He then says, then neither do I condemn you. Reminiscent of John 3.17 where he's having a conversation with Nicodemus. And he said that he did not come into the world to condemn the world as many think. That's what many people have a perception of in our culture. He shows that he is merciful and he demonstrates the character of God and we have to believe that the woman's life has changed. Can you imagine how she walked away? Jesus says, go and sin no more. Douglas Moo, who's a commentator and a theologian from Australia, says this, that the farther we get from the realization that we are people in need of mercy, the harder it is for us to extend it to others. But Jesus redefines what God is like. 
He draws a new picture. And you hear this in the Gospels time and again, uh, where Jesus says, um, you've heard that Moses said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which was actually meant to be a statement to limit how much revenge you took. Uh, but Jesus says, no, turn the other cheek. So he takes something that was commonly known in their law and he redefines it and he reshapes what God looks like for them. He draws a new picture. So taking Jesus as our lead, can we redefine what a follower of Christ looks like in our culture? And I suggest that a follower of Christ is one who recognizes their need for God's mercy and is willing to extend it to others. A couple of weeks ago, I was preparing for a training event and we posted some assignments online in a learning management system and uh, we sent out preparation assignments to people and people had to read a book that was about spiritual formation. And then some people would post uh, online comments to the other participants. And one particular person um, who started the whole posting posted something that just really burnt my onion. It felt disrespectful. It felt like he was missing out on the mercy of God. But here's the thing, other than what he did was the reaction that it caused in my heart. I stepped back and for days I you know, was frustrated, I was angry, I thought, well how will I you know, respond to him? Will I give him a good theological argument? And I thought of many. Um, will I call him and lash out? You know, will I post something that makes him look bad? There's a whole bunch of options that were before me. But it really troubled my heart. So last week, or about 10 days ago, I was sitting with my spiritual director. And a spiritual director is a person who meets with you, usually one-on-one, -on -one, to listen generously and to help you discern how God is at work in your life. And I was recounting to Rick, that's his name, uh, and just saying, I, I want to be careful how I respond. And I'll never forget what Rick said after he listened. And then he gently said, yes, how will you write in the sand? In other words, how will I show mercy? You see, I had committed something called the fundamental attribution error. As explained by Patrick Glencioni, the fundamental attribution error is this. We human beings tend to falsely attribute the negative behavior of others to their character, while we attribute our own negative behaviors to our environment. In other words, we tend to quickly think the worst of others and their character while dismissing our own wrongdoings with excuses such as, I was just having a bad day or I'm under a lot of stress. I think that in these days, we are seeing a lot more than the usual amount of fundamental attribution error or thinking the worst of others because of pandemic-related stress. And since a lot of our communication tends to be online or virtually, we are quicker than usual to jump to negative conclusions and think the worst of others. And I think in what we're communicating, we often miss the thoughtful, kind, gracious responses that Jesus might make. So in our unique times, I think we can learn something 
about how we live and navigate our mostly virtual world from Emerson Egerich's, who is an author, and he wrote the book called Before You Hit Send, which was all about how we communicate online. Um, but I will suggest that in our day, uh, even some people in how we speak, we need to step back and ask ourselves these four questions that uh, Egerich's gives us. First of all, he says, before you post, ask this question, is it true? Is it kind? Is it necessary? And is it clear? If we just ran our communication through that little grid, uh, ran through our mind with that little grid, is it true? Is it kind? Is it necessary? And is it clear? I think we would be a lot better off. That people would be able to look at us from afar or up close and say, okay, they are kind. They are expressing the love of Christ. They are indeed the light of the world, as Jesus spoke later of us. He says it of himself in the I am statements, I am the light of the world. But in the book of Matthew, he says, you are the light of the world. Hmm. So let's remember that we are representing Jesus when we communicate by word or by deed. And let us speak gently, kindly, and with conviction as people who recognize their need for God's mercy and are willing to extend it to others. Let's pray together. Dear Lord Jesus, we are grateful for this opportunity that we have this morning to be in your presence, to sing songs of joy and remembrance of who you are, to thank you for the King that you are. Lord, I pray as followers of you that we would look to you constantly for our answers, that we would look to you constantly for how we should react, how we should respond, for how we should express kindness and mercy to others in our culture, to others in our very own homes. So give us strength. Remind us of who you are. Lord, we are grateful for your mercy. We recognize that we are no different than that woman who stood before you, that we indeed are sinners in need of your mercy. And I thank you that you say you do not condemn us. Lord, help us to be gracious to others, I pray. In the name of Jesus. Amen.